Hi guys, it's Ryan. And it's Alex. And we're a couple days early uploading this, but happy Valentine's Day. Yay. We're excited. Uh, Al, what are your feelings on Valentine's Day? I love Valentine's Day now that I am not working. Well, I do have to work, but I don't (laughs) have to work in floral on Valentine's Day, which I've done for the past five Valentine's Days. (laughs) I don't know if we've said this on the podcast before, but me and Al actually became friends working together in a floral shop. So it's a throwback. Actually, the first time that we met was for a Valentine's Day that we were both scheduled in the floral shop. And then we ended up becoming floral shop employees. We got we got just randomly chosen to be in the floral shop that weekend and we ended up becoming best friends and working together for years. So kind of crazy how things turn out. But anyway, now, five years later, six years later, whatever, we're here sitting telling you a murder story, something we never <laughs> thought we would do at 16. Um, but here we are. And I personally love Valentine's Day. It's my favorite day of the year. I think the concept of having an entire day dedicated solely to celebrating love is so wonderful and lovely and it just makes my heart so happy but sometimes love can go wrong and you can maybe love someone too much or not for the right reasons and today I'm going to tell you the story of what can happen when love goes wrong let's get into it At the turn of the century in 2000, Dr. John Hamilton was enjoying the perks of life as a member of classic high society. He was an OBGYN who, in addition to his regular practice, also ran an abortion clinic in Oklahoma where he and his family lived. John and his wife Susan had met in 1985 at a mutual friend's birthday party. At the time, both of them were in their late 30s and they had both recently separated from their spouses. John from his first, wi- first wife, excuse me, with whom he had two children, and Susan from her husband, Dick Horton, with whom she also had two children. Taking on more children was no problem for Susan as she was proud to be a mother and truly loved her role taking care of children. Even though she was a smart woman with a great education who was totally capable of pursuing plenty of things outside of parenthood, her true passion lied within being a mother. Two years after their first date, John and Susan married at a local country club. Colleagues of John's who knew the two of them recall them being very happy together. John's best man at their wedding said that John and Susan had an instant connection when they met and that he fawned over her. The doctor and his new wife built an enviable life for themselves, complete with a big, comfortable house in a fancy neighborhood, lavish dinner parties, and of course, plenty of -of spur-of-the-moment vacations. The seemingly inseparable couple became even more so after they married. Susan actually managed John's abortion clinic, working there a couple of days a week. It was a job that came with a little bit of danger, since anti-abortion protesters were a common reality outside their clinic located in very conservative Oklahoma. But Susan was never one to shy away from confrontation when faced with it. Susan was very strongly pro-choice and very outspoken about that and about the overall rights of women. If anything, any threats against the clinic only seemed to ultimately bring John and Susan closer together in fighting for what they believed in. On February 14th of 2001, the couple awoke for another day in their seemingly fabulous life and planned to celebrate their 15th Valentine's Day together that evening. That Wednesday morning, John left early for his first surgery that was scheduled for 8 a.m. When he arrived home from work later in the day, he came inside to find a horrific scene. His beloved wife, Susan, lying viciously beaten with two neckties knotted around her neck on their bathroom floor. 
Her head had been bludgeoned, and she was surrounded by a thick pool of her own blood. Her face was so savaged, in fact, that she was almost unrecognizable. And that was when Jeff... (laughs) Jeff. His name is John. (laughs) Close! (laughs) And that was when John frantically called 911. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Please, please send police. Please send an ambulance. Please. What's the problem? My my wife. My wife. My wife. I I think my wife is dead. Please, sir. Please, sir. Please, please. listen. I'm a doctor. I've been trying CPR. Please send somebody quick. Okay. Is she not breathing? No, no, she's not breathing. I don't get a pulse. Please hurry. Okay. You're doing CPR. Yes. Yes. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm going to hang up so I can continue. Please. Okay. All right. We'll be right there. Okay. When emergency workers arrived a few minutes later, it was very clear that Susan Hamilton was already dead. So at this point, there are a few possibilities of what could have happened in Susan's last moments. Was it a robbery gone bad? A random intruder with a violent desire to kill? Or maybe could it be an anti-abortion extremist who is targeting the doctor and his wife? Oklahoma City investigators Teresa Sterling and Randy Scott arrived at the Hamilton house at noon that day. They found a disturbing scene that didn't suit a moneyed neighborhood. Right away, detectives started asking, who could be responsible? Now, keep in mind, John Hamilton was a doctor who performed abortions. His wife, Susan, worked twice a week at that same abortion clinic. So it's very possible that there in conservative Oklahoma... Susan may have actually been murdered by an anti-abortion extremist. There was reason to believe that this just might be the case when police heard that just a week before Susan was murdered, a wanted poster had been made for Dr. Hamilton. It read, quote, A reward in heaven will be bestowed on anyone contributing to bringing this murderer to justice, end quote. And both John and Susan had received threatening phone calls that same week. At this point, colleagues of the couple like Steve Jimerson, who had been John's best man in their wedding, remember being afraid for their safety. There were things done that were genuinely dangerous. We're talking people trying to set fire to their clinic, vandalizing their home, and putting out those brochures all over John's neighborhood and his kid's school that implied reward for his literal murder. Beyond all of this, just days before Susan's murder, an anti-abortion group had also applied for a permit to stage a protest in front of their house, at home. Isn't that terrible? It's not necessary. Stop it. Leave people alone at home. That's, like, a lot excessive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But according to investigator Sterling, all of these people were actually interviewed, and every avenue was checked, but none of them led to answers. They still considered that maybe it was a burglary, checking back into every case of any burglary, even remotely close in the neighborhood, but that also didn't turn up any leads. As is routine in most domestic murders, the detectives had to take a look at the spouse. In this case, though, the spouse had an alibi, and it was a pretty good one. John had been up early for a surgery at an outpatient clinic, and at around 8.30, he had later bumped into his former medical partner, Dr. Karen Raysig, who recalls seeing him in the doctor's lounge. She even remembered that when she first walked in the room, she noticed him in there on the phone, seemingly chatting lightheartedly with his wife, even smiling and laughing through their conversation. After getting off the phone, John decided to swing back home quick because their house is located right between the two hospitals where John had done his first surgery that morning and where he was going to spend the rest of his day. He was only at home for a few minutes because his second surgery was scheduled for 9 a.m. By 9.30, he was scrubbing up for the operation, a complicated tumor removal. 
The procedure went well, and none of the other doctors or surgical staff reported anything at all unusual in John's behavior. They all said that he was just as normal and jovial as he always was. By 10.45 a.m., he was on his way home again, which is when he came inside and called police to report that he had discovered Susan in a pool of blood. So the timeline was extremely tight for the doctor to even be considered as a suspect. You'd have to believe that he committed the violent murder in that narrow window between his two surgeries. His former medical partner, for one, thinks that that would be impossible. And beyond that, the normal behavior reported by all of his colleagues told investigators that there was pretty much no way he had just murdered his wife and then come back home later. Regardless, investigators weren't ruling anything out since nothing in this case seemed certain, especially not after finding a Valentine's Day card in John's Jaguar, from Susan to him, that had been opened that day. This is because the card was clear a clear indication that Susan still felt something for John, but that things just weren't the same. Turns out, Susan really wasn't perfectly content with her marriage. When the neighbor, a woman named Susan Johnston, saw the police at the Hamilton's home and deciphered what was going on, she had pulled one of the investigators aside and put the bug in his ear that the week before, Susan Hamilton had confided in her about problems in her marriage. According to this neighbor, Susan had noticed that John was getting a lot of calls on his cell recently. I think she became particularly alarmed when he wouldn't answer them in front of her. He told her that it was just a patient who was down on her luck and having psychological problems, and he was just helping her out in an attempt to be a good source of good counsel for her. The patient, as Susan later discovered, was actually a stripper at a nightclub. Susan then demanded to see John's cell phone bill, and when she got a hold of it, her worst fears were realized. Whoever this woman was, there were way too many calls to and from her on his cell for it to be innocent. We're talking like a hundred recent calls to this woman's phone back and forth. Susan, of course, gets very suspicious of it and confronts John about it. So when she does, John retells the same story that the patient had been having serious psychological problems and had even threatened suicide. John, the good doctor, was simply trying to counsel her, and while he may have stepped over his boundaries professionally, he said he had never had an affair with her. With this new information about the potential mistress, investigators started to consider her. They're thinking that maybe he was having an affair and maybe ends up terminating that to save his marriage with Susan, who he seems to have loved a lot, and then the mistress goes haywire and decides to eliminate her competition. One thing that everyone who knew the couple, including the neighbor that Susan had confided in about the phone calls, seemed to agree on one thing. It was that whoever Susan's killer was... It certainly was not John Hamilton. Everyone was adamant that John loved Susan, and even if he had been having an affair, he would never hurt her physically. No one had ever heard him raise his voice at Susan in all the years they had been together. With these testimonies of good character, the fact that John was an established professional, and the fact that John had an alibi for the morning because of his surgeries, police seemed to have be having a bit of a hard time connecting him to the murder. Investigators had plenty of theories to work with at this point the mistress, possibly still John, a complete stranger. Before that very Valentine's Day was over, they had a suspect in custody, and when his name was released, it would shock everybody. Investigators have a special word for crimes of rage. They call them overkill, and that's exactly how one could describe what happened to Susan Hamilton on that Valentine's Day morning. Whoever killed her had cracked her skull open with an object that was actually never found and bashed her face into the bathroom tile. Two men's neckties were then tightly knotted around her neck. The scene was a bloody mess, and while there were scenarios to consider, a berserk robber or maybe the legion of activists opposed to the couple's abortion practice, the crime scene wasn't telling them that. For starters, 
They were in a bloody crime scene, but there were no footprints or marks leading out of the house. Shouldn't the killer have left a trace, at least a little bit? After looking everywhere, there were no burglary prints to obtain downstairs in the house. There was no tracks that ran out through the creek bed behind the house. No trace. Soon after their arrival, investigators started questioning John. By then, there had already been that neighbor's tip about problems in the Hamilton's marriage. And that wasn't all. The doctor's behavior in the minutes after finding Susan dead, especially in such a gruesome way, seemed off to investigators. John had told the 911 operator that he was performing CPR, but when the first of the first responders, a firefighter named David Bradbury, arrived on the scene, he thought that there was something odd about the way the doctor was performing chest compressions. Bradbury said that John had one hand on her chest, one hand on her abdomen, attempting to do compressions. The way correct, the correct way to do CPR, as a trained doctor would obviously know, is to interlock your hands, placing your palm on the center of the chest on the person's sternum. And Bradbury says he didn't see any signs the doctor had even attempted mouth-to-mouth resuscitation at all either. It would have been pretty obvious because of the way that she had been beaten. I mean, her face was swollen, her face was super bloody, so... Um, since he, since Bradbury arrived right in the midst of John's life-saving efforts, uh, if if he had been give, attempting to give mouth-to-mouth, he would have had like at least a little bit of blood on his face or something, and he didn't have anything like that. After arriving at the crime scene and initially questioning him, investigators placed John in the back of one of their police cars. And it was there that they noticed something else odd about his behavior. Investigator Sterling recalls that he was acting very upset. He was scraping his knuckles on the mesh uh, screen in the police car between the front and the back. He was banging his head into the screen, and overall he was just acting super bizarre. By that afternoon, police had taken him down to the station. They took his clothes as evidence and sat him in an interview room. They kept him there for hours on end, just watching, taping him on the surveillance camera. They said that his behavior is not what they usually see in a spouse in John's position. When left alone in the room, Hamilton seemed to be checking out his shoulder area, which made the investigators wonder, had he hurt himself? And if so, how? Could it have been from Susan struggling with him if he had hurt her? And when they found fresh scratches on his hands and arms, they wondered if that could be explained by the scraping of his hands and arms on the patrol car cage, or was he just trying to cover up earlier injuries potentially from Susan? Investigators also noticed that in the interrogation room, John was excessively emotional in front of detectives, but appeared very calm when he was left alone. But still, even with his weird behavior, there was there was still the doctor's seemingly solid alibi. After all, he'd had a busy morning, performing not just one, but two surgeries with only a brief stop at home in between. The biggest part for them was trying to figure out how he could get there, spend any time there, especially long enough to viciously viciously attack his wife, and still make it back to perform the second surgery. When the detectives looked more closely into the doctor's timeline that morning, sure enough, they saw a hole. Not a big one, but maybe enough time to kill Susan and get back to work. They'd learned that the second surgery, originally scheduled for 9 a.m., hadn't actually gotten underway until 9.40. And why was it delayed? because Dr. John Hamilton was late, not scrubbing in until 9.30 a.m. To investigators, that delay opened the doctor's window of opportunity by up to an hour. So late that Valentine's Day afternoon, they arrested John Hamilton for the murder of his wife. (gasps) Mm -hmm. He was jailed immediately and denied bail. The case now landed in the hands of Wes Lane, who was the DA who would try Dr. John Hamilton for murder. 
The prosecutor was aware of the hurdles he faced, not the least of which the seeming lack of motive. Lane looked for signs of spousal abuse in the past, but even he couldn't find anything substantive. Until that Valentine's Day morning, there was pretty much no evidence of any problems between the two of them. No anger issues, no history of this guy hitting her or freaking out or doing literally anything violent or abnormal. Everyone who knew the couple was still saying the same thing. It just didn't make sense for the mild-mannered doctor to have killed Susan. Even Susan's children were standing by their stepfather. They didn't even believe that he did it. Over the next few months, though, with the help of some unique forensic evidence, the DA would put together a novel theory of just what happened between husband and wife, something maybe grimly fitting for Valentine's Day. He found that Susan was talking about leaving him, and so the motive could have very well been love lost. In December of 2001, 10 months after the Valentine's Day killing of his wife, Susan, Dr. John Hamilton was being tried for her murder. A crowd lined up to attend the proceedings, loyal patients, former employees, and fellow physicians, all standing behind the doctor. There were people that thought this guy was being sandbagged, railroaded. A very nice, innocent guy was facing a nightmare. And I mean, everyone that they talked to, from a restaurant waitress that would wait on him on Sunday, Saturday, Saturday and Sunday mornings, um, to the people that he worked closest with, were shocked that they could have charged John with the crime because... They would see them at breakfast together or at work or whatever, all lovey-dovey. And so, yes, there was just this vast amount of opposition and skepticism about his guilt coming from the people that knew them. So what the DA hoped to show the skeptics through the trial was that, yes, the doctor was indeed a man who loved his wife, but maybe he had loved her too much. To the prosecutor, the Valentine's Day card John had received that morning from Susan lit the fuse for the violence that followed. In that card, Susan had written a message alluding to the couple's flare-up just days before about Susan's suspicions that he was having a fling with a stripper. The prosecutor told the jury he envisioned the murder this way. The doctor coming back mid-morning after his first surgery, trying to patch things up with his wife who totally wasn't buying it. He knew that she was still considering divorce, and so something happened in that bathroom that absolutely triggered him. So he grabbed the ties, and he then surprised her, and in his rage, did all the rest. John, according to the DA's version, now had to cover up his frenzy by going back to perform his second surgery as though nothing had happened. And here's, that, here's the thing about that timeline. John had to have left the house by 9.20 to make it back to the hospital by 9.30 when he was seen scrubbing in for his second surgery. Susan, as it turns out, should have also left by 9.20 because she had a 9.30 meeting at a friend's house 10 minutes away. But from all appearances, she never got much of a chance to get ready. When she was discovered, she was still undressed and her hair was still wet, which means if John Hamilton didn't do it, you'd have to believe whoever did arrived right as he was leaving to go for his second surgery or they had been waiting inside all along. And there's just no physical evidence that that happened. The only suspicion, the only suspicious thing that could indicate the presence of an intruder was that the back door was open, even though it was cold outside. But that could have been easily staged and did not reveal any fingerprints that did not belong there, a.k.a. they didn't belong to anyone outside of the house. Like, if John's prints were found there, it wouldn't really make any difference because he lives there. Yeah. Like, it's totally reasonable that he would have touched it. Um, so in the photos of the crime scene, the DA also pointed out for jurors something that needed explaining. A wet rag left in the pool of blood from the victim's head. It looks like the start of an attempted and then abandoned cleanup effort. 
It was obvious that the blood had been moved around, and they actually believed that John Hamilton was trying to clean things up before he got Paige to return for surgery. Amidst all of this, there was a curious story that cropped up in the days after Susan had been murdered. A friend was combing Susan's clothes closet for something appropriate for her to be buried in when she came across something concealed in her underwear drawer. It was Susan's good jewelry. Dick Horton, her first husband, the guy Mm -hmm. that she had been married to before, heard the story firsthand from the friend. The thing was, he thought... He thought that it was really strange that this whole thing had been ruled out as a robbery at this point because nothing had been stolen. So why would the jewelry be there? According to Dick Horton, her first husband, who knew her very well, Susan was a very smart woman and she would have never hidden jewelry in her underwear drawer um, just because almost as if it was too obvious, like it's too obvious of a hiding place. Like Mm -hmm. people would think of that to check. And so that kind of which is uh, that thought from him is what led what led to the realization that the jewelry could have been placed there to throw off the investigation. Dick Horton was actually the one that realized that maybe it wasn't her that put it there. Yeah. And he brought that up to the investigators. So this was the reasoning as prosecutors saw it. So John would have wanted the police to believe that the crime had started as a robbery. And what do robbers take? Jewelry. So he hid his wife's jewelry before the 911 forces arrived, fully intending to get it out of the house sometime later to make it appear stolen, but he never had a chance to do that or to tell the cops that the killer had gotten the jewelry, all because he was put in the back of a police car and never got back inside the house again. And, finally, there was the story told by blood. The medical examiner had determined that Susan had been strangled with the two neckties, but that her fatal injuries came from being bludgeoned over the head with a blunt object, that murder weapon that was never um, found. Investigators only really had the blood evidence left behind to examine, and for that, they hired a blood-stained expert named Ross Gardner. Gardner carefully examined everything John had been wearing that morning. A lot of the blood on his clothing could be explained by his attempt to administer CPR after finding his wife, but the expert looked at John's shoes, the left one in particular, and found that that had to just be a different matter. The shoes were found next to Susan's body because John said they fell off his feet as he was attempting to revive her. The expert, though, was certain that whoever was wearing that left shoe the day that day was present when Susan Hamilton was being bludgeoned to death. This was because it was clear that the inside and front of that shoe had been in motion around the spatter from Mrs. Hamilton's murder based on the splatter patterns. And the only explanation of that event is that the wounding to Mrs. Hamilton's head was done by the person wearing that left shoe. And then there were these curious stains on the doctor's shirt. The blood expert thought he saw a similarity between their angular shape and the wound created on Susan's head. His theory was that the stains on the shirt were left by the murder weapon as it came in contact with the garment. Of course, he didn't have the actual murder weapon to make a true comparison, but he was able to leave the jury with a vivid impression. The doctor's shirt may have taken a kind of photograph in blood. By comparing a one-to-one image of Susan's head laceration and a one-to-one image of John's shirt by overlaying them, you could overlay the pattern transfer right on top of the wound. They match up perfectly. But the most damning blood evidence of all may have been what was found in John's car. On the steering wheel and driver's side seat and door sill, investigators recovered strands of Susan's hair and a piece of her flesh. And how did it get there from the bathroom? To investigators, the only plausible explanation was that John had bundled up the murder weapon to dispose of it somewhere along the way as he raced back for his second surgery and that the bloody bundle had leaked. By the time the prosecutor had wrapped up his case, he'd laid out a theory of what happened. 
that John had used the neckties to pull his wife down to the ground, then bashed her head in with whatever that murder weapon was that was never found. Afterwards, he tried to clean up, but quickly gave up when he had to go maintain his alibi by attending the second surgery. Dr. John Hamilton, though, was ready to explain it all, and his version of the truth would be completely different than the DA's. His long silence behind bars ended as he prepared to tell the jury what really had happened that Valentine's Day morning, at least according to him. For those 10 months, ever since that Valentine's Day when he was arrested for the murder of his wife, John Hamilton had kept his silence behind bars. Now he would be able to tell his side of the story. Mac Martin, the doctor's lead attorney, knew it would be an uphill battle. To the defense team, it seemed obvious from the first moments that investigators never seriously considered any suspects other than the husband. The focus was always on John. It was never anywhere else. It was never on any abortion protesters. It was never on anyone that there were those calls that were made to Susan the week before that scared her, for example, um, that weren't brought in court because the judge had actually ruled that he would not allow any testimony about threats John and Susan may have received, um, which I couldn't find why he wouldn't allow that in the courtroom because I feel like that seems reasonable, but maybe it's because it's not relevant pertaining to whether or not he murdered her yeah it's just another separate theory that doesn't involve john so maybe that's why yeah that would make sense it's not relevant in his case but it's still a relevant fact i guess in general so um the strategy would be to pick apart both the evidence and the logic of the prosecution's case so according to john's testimony after their tensions that morning and the time leading up to that day john and susan had talked about things more and things were clarified and straightened out According to John, things weren't nearly as bad as the DA portrayed them to be at that point. As John Hamilton told it, by Valentine's Day, the couple had already patched up the raw wounds of that ruckus over his relationship with a stripper. The doctor said he'd even started seeing a therapist on his own to earn back Susan's trust, and that Susan had even decided to go to counseling with him. Even the DA had to admit that John had been telling the truth in regards to the suspected affair because he himself had questioned the other woman, the mistress, and she confirmed his story that there had not been a sexual relationship between the two of them. John also stated that Susan had recently even confided in her best friend, a woman named Sherry, that she no no longer even believed that John had actually had the affair. John then refuted the prosecution's case against him point by point. Like... The observation made by the detectives that he was freaking out in the back of the cop car, scratching his hands and arms on the mesh screen. To explain this, John said, quote, I was frantic. I mean, I knew Susan was dead. I knew that they were suspecting me. I was scared. I had a million thoughts that were running through my mind. The major one is that I've lost the love of my life. I was never going to see Susan again, end quote. And to explain away the scratches that John seemed to be investigating while waiting in the police car and in the interrogation room later, John asked, quote, If Susan had scratched me, wouldn't you assume that they would have found tissue, blood, DNA, or something of the sort under her fingernails? Nothing was found, and it was looked for extensively, end quote. Next, how about the gap in his alibi? Prosecutors had made a big deal about the doctor showing up late for his second surgery that morning. Was he, in fact, late, as they had theorized, because he was killing his wife during those moments and then trying to figure out what to do next? Well, according to John, that's not the truth at all. According to him, he'd been told by a surgical nurse that the surgery before his was running long, and he decided to use the delay time to run home and give his wife a valentine, which is when she returned one to him with that snarky embedded message. Which, by the way, John also explained away, saying he didn't think much of the comment because she also said things to the effect of how much she loved him and about their time together. 
As for the discovery of Susan's hair and blood tissue in his car, Hamilton explained it this way. He said after calling 911, he realized that the EMTs wouldn't be able to get to their am- get their ambulance past his car where it was parked out front. Mm-hmm. And so he raced out to move his car. He said he must have gotten Susan's blood on him from performing CPR, and then that, that blood must have gotten transferred into his car when he ran out to try to move it. Gotcha. And finally, how about Susan's jewelry that was hidden in her underwear drawer? John said that he doesn't have a great explanation for that one, to be honest, other than that in his frantic state, he was concerned about them being out in the open. He said basically he hid it, like implying that he was worried that the people that were going to be there would steal them, which I find strange and a bad reason. But he he did have an answer. It just wasn't a very good one. In murder cases constructed on the interpretation of blood evidence, it's not at all unusual for juries to hear from dueling experts when they go to trial. And that's exactly what happened here. So it was seen as a coup for the defense that it locked up one of the most highly regarded blood spatter experts in the nation. His name was Tom Bevel. He was a veteran of almost three decades with the Oklahoma City PD, and he'd even mentored the blood expert used by the prosecution. So he was like the top dog above the one that they that the prosecution had used. Oh, dang. And so, as expected, his take on the story told by the blood painted his client, John Hamilton, in a much better light than the prosecution's had. For instance, remember the shirt that the prosecution suggested had a blood stain left by the murder weapon? The defense expert, Bevel, said that he wouldn't go that far. According to Bevel, in order to say that, you would have to have the murder weapon, but the murder weapon was never found. So you don't have an object to compare it against, technically. And remember the shoe splattered with Susan's blood from different directions that the prosecution's experts said had to indicate the wearer of the shoe was present for the murder? Well, according to Bevel, the pattern did not prove anything conclusive, and it could have plausibly gotten the blood on it during the attempt at CPR. Bevel was the last witness in the trial, and from everything he testified to under the defense defense attorney's questioning, he had helped John Hamilton's case totally. He made him look way better. An authoritative figure on the stand turning blood evidence from damning into benign means something to people, especially the jurors. And then the prosecutor rose for his cross-examination, and that is when the bottom fell out of everything. Now, courtroom lawyers like to talk about Perry Mason moments when a trial is electrified by an unexpected testimony, but it hardly ever happens. But it did in this case, though. The prosecutor tossed out an open-ended question. Well, Mr. Bevel... Is there anything that either the state's experts or the Oklahoma City Police Department missed in their examination of the evidence? The blood splatter expert on the stand, on the payroll of the defense, remember, hesitated before finally answering, yes, sir. There was a detail that the witness wanted to talk about, something he'd noted and what would later be regarded as the atomic bomb of the trial of Dr. John Hamilton, it was about that bloody shirt taken from the doctor. Bevel explained that in his examination, he found additional blood that was not talked about anywhere else on the inside of the right cuff. The prosecution hadn't talked about the stain at all. Maybe they had missed it altogether. It was up inside the sleeve, after all, so it might have been kind of hard for them to notice. And that's when he started explaining that because the blood spatter was inside the sleeve, the only thing that he could logically think of that could be consistent with that was that John was wearing the shirt, uh, and it, with the fact that John was wearing the shirt, was that he only could have gotten it up his sleeve if he was beating her with that blunt instrument and it splattered up into his sleeve. Hmm. So, to be clear, 
the defense expert is saying that Dr. John Hamilton most likely created those bloodstains by bashing in his wife's skull, implying that he's guilty for her murder. That is very sus. The defense witness. Flipped. (laughs) I mean... I've never heard of anything like this before, and I think it's crazy. So... Okay, let's let's we'll talk about this. We'll come back to it. So on redirect, Hamilton's lawyer tried to defuse the bombshell, of course, the bombshell testimony by suggesting that the spatter could have resulted from the doctor performing CPR. But his argument wouldn't be enough to calm the minds of the jurors who took just two hours to reach their verdict guilty of murder. Two weeks later, John was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. After handing down this sentence to the seemingly shocked doctor, the judge added, quote, Based upon the comments a majority of the jurors gave to me in which they indicated that they were very disappointed they didn't have the sentence of death as an option, I would consider yourself very lucky, end quote. But for John Hamilton, the fight wasn't over. He hired a new attorney named Rob Nye to appeal the verdict. Rob Nye had worked on the crim- on criminal trials and appeals for two decades and had never seen a case like John's where the most compelling evidence against the defendant was offered by the defense's own expert. So naturally, their main argument was that Tom Bevel should not have been allowed to testify. According to Rob Nye, either Tom Bevel lied to the defense about what his testimony was going to be, or the defense counsel took a way too big of a risk that should have never been taken. In either case, he argued John deserved a new trial. Tom Bevel denies ever lying about his testimony, and the courts didn't buy the argument either. The appeal still made their way all the way up to the Supreme Court, but they ultimately failed. In an interview where John was told that many people that believe he's guilty think that now is the time for him to just admit his guilt, now now that it won't change anything for him, they're basically saying, you're already in trouble, you might as well just admit it. Yeah. He responded by saying, quote, I'm telling the truth now. If I was the guy they think I am, then what do I have to lose by telling the truth? I don't have anything to lose. If I really did it, if it would, if it would clear my conscience, but I didn't do it, I didn't kill Susan, end quote. For Susan's family and friends, the case is now formally closed, but it may never bring closure. After all, nothing can bring back the beautiful, headstrong woman they all loved. Today, John Hamilton is serving his life sentence in a maximum security prison behind the walls where Valentine's Day or love in general doesn't have much meaning at all. And as for the children that Susan left behind, they now live with their father, Susan's first husband, Dick Horton. And for them, Valentine's Day is still about celebrating love thanks to encouragement from their dad. Though it plagued their minds for the first few Valentine's Days after the fateful one in 2001, the kids work on focusing not on the tragic murder of their mother, no matter who was responsible, but instead, they focus on celebrating the greatest love of all, the undying love of a mother. Aww. <laughs> so, okay, this time I actually have things to talk about, and I'm really excited about that because usually I struggle to think of specific things to bring up. <laughs> so, a couple things, like, these are questions that I had throughout, the, throughout my research, and then I found the answers to them. I guess there's like only like one or two, but Mm -hmm. I just I just felt like we should talk about them in case people had the same thought that I did. So the first thing, which was the biggest one to me, was why would he leave his dying wife to go move his car? Like, I thought that was so weird. But he, he said when they asked him about that, when he was trying to kind of explain away all his things. So this wasn't in the trial, but he had like other interviews afterwards where he where he would kind of try to defend himself, like not on the court record, you know. 
And he said about that that he knew in his heart that she was already dead and he wanted he didn't want to obstruct help in any way. Huh. So like he already knew that he couldn't save her by continuing CPR and stuff. And when I saw him say that, it almost kind of made me wonder if that also had anything to do with why he wasn't doing very good CPR or why he hadn't tried mouth to mouth. Yeah. Because if he, I mean, he was, he was a doctor. He would probably know almost immediately looking at her, okay, she's dead. Even though I don't want to believe my wife is dead, I, as a, yeah. as a medical professional, know that she's already gone. Yeah. And so I could see, I could see that. And so then in that, in that case, he's already, as a doctor, he lost, if it was truly not him, if it somehow was not, not him, and he really did walk in to find that, he didn't even have the element of hope. Because he, like, you know, a regular person that's not sure they're dead would hope that they could, you know, that they could maybe live. And he was already sure that she was dead. So he's freaking out because he already knows that the worst case scenario is happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in Devil's Advocate, I kind of, I don't know. Throughout this whole thing, like, the blood evidence is really damning, especially if, if the Bevel guy's stuff is all right the guy that ended up kind of flipping on him yeah if everything he said is true and stuff then obviously the blood evidence really is pretty damning for him but something inside me kind of tells me that maybe he didn't do it i can't decide um (laughs) i don't know what (laughs) i don't know like i don't know i guess for some reason in this one he's just like his responses are convincing to me like i could see his point of view i could see how you would I don't know. I don't know. But I don't know. Overall, he probably did do it. I'm not really convinced that he didn't do it. I just have like this tiny f- twinge of hope in me that he maybe didn't. And that's like, I guess that's what I'm saying. Not that I really okay, think he didn't that, do yeah, it, yeah, but yeah. more like I want to believe he didn't do it. But I, I, he probably did. So, okay. So that was the first thing. And then, um, however, something that totally like kind of goes along with the possible idea that he didn't do it is that uh in some other sources that I saw I found that some neighbors had reported seeing strange footprints in their yards in the weeks leading up to Susan's death and I thought that was kind of strange because perhaps somebody could have been like casing their house or something but at the same time at the same time uh if, you, if you're still going from the place that John did do it, you could explain those footprints away as being either A, the neighbors didn't have, either A, those were false reports somehow or something, or B, that those footprints could have been from like protesters or something that were trying to find their house to know where the next protest was going to be when they showed up at their house. Yeah, that does You know make what I mean? Sense. Like it could have been just somebody walking through that didn't like murder, but maybe didn't have the best intentions. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I don't I don't know. I guess I don't know how convincing that is either way there. And then also last thing, she was killed in a bathroom full of mirrors. So whoever it was that came up behind her, like she would have seen them. You know what I mean? So like the fact that she didn't immediately freak out and turn around and try to defend herself tells me that maybe it was him because she was comfortable with him walking up behind her. Yeah. When she was naked in her bathroom. You know what I mean? Like, she wasn't scared of him coming close to her or whatever, so she didn't immediately turn yeah, around and defend mm-hmm. herself because it's her husband. Yeah. That so, does make sense. Yeah. So that one does kind of play into that maybe it was him. I feel like, I don't know, overall, based on the physical evidence they do have, probably was him. But still in my heart, I'd want to believe that people... 
I want to believe that everyone is good and that Valentine's Day runs true in everyone's heart and that everyone is truly full of love and not hatred and murder, but there's plenty of people full of hatred and murder out there. So even on Valentine's Day, even on the day meant to celebrate love, terrible, terrible things can happen. Even the people that love can kill you. That's another reason for me to remind you that everyone is a little sus. Everyone. Retweet. Even the people you love, even the people that love you, they could hurt you, even on the day of love. That's all. I hope you have a happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Make sure you follow us on all the things on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and make sure to leave us only five-star reviews, by the way. See you next week. Bye. Bye. This episode of That's Sus was researched, written, and hosted by me, Ryan Needles, with co-hosting by Alex Hughes. All music, editing, and sound production was done by Michael Coffey, and our art was created by Carson Ghosts.